Well, good morning. It's a gift for me to be able to be with you this morning. I was so encouraged as your pastor came to the church. I was serving out in Virginia in June to minister the gospel. Uh, he talked well of you guys. Uh, so that's a good thing for you to know. Your pastor likes you and speaks of you highly. Uh, so encouraged just by what the Lord is doing in this church. Um, you, you probably don't have a sense of it when you live in a place, but for someone who just comes in, to think about a, a gospel witness, a lampstand for the gospel being raised up in a, in a city, in a place, it's so encouraging. Um, so I'll be praying for you going forward, and it's, it's a gift to be able to minister God's word to you this morning. I want to begin with a story of a man named Jack Lucas. Jack was born in North Carolina in 1928, so almost 100 years ago on Valentine's Day. He was the son of a farmer. His dad died when he was just 10, and so his mom decided that she was going to send him to a boarding school, a military boarding school, which Jack did not like very much. Uh, so much so that when he was 14, uh, he, he looked older than his age. He was quite a, a large boy, and so he felt confident enough to walk into an enlistment office for the Marines. Now, you can't enlist in the Marines when you're 14 years old, can you? Uh, so he had to forge uh, a parental consent form and bribe a notary uh, to convince the enlistment officer that he was old enough to join the Marines. Uh, so he lied. He did that. He ends up tra training as a, a rifleman and a heavy machine gun crewman. This is as World War II is raging. Uh, his unit was eventually sent to Pearl Harbor in the Pacific where he was promoted to private first class. Now, the, the way his friends report it, on January 10th, 1945, he simply walked off of base. Uh, he was wearing a khaki uniform with an extra pair of pants and trousers under his arm, and he didn't return, so he was reported as UA, uh, unauthorized absence. Uh, eventually, he would have been arrested for desertion, but what he actually did was slip on board the USS Duel that was on its way to Iwo Jima for the Marine infantry invasion of that island. Uh, during the, the trip there, he eventually turns himself in to the commanding officer uh, who strips him of his rank but decides everybody's going ashore, so Jack is going to join the landing party. So <clears throat> this is five days after his 17th birthday now. Uh, he joins the landing on the Japanese-held island. Uh, with three other Marines, they're kind of creeping through a ravine towards uh, the enemy um, where they're dug in. Uh, they're spied by 11 Japanese soldier that, soldiers that open fire on them and throw two grenades into the trench where he and three Marines are. Uh, Lucas sees the grenades. He jumps over another Marine to land on top of them. Uh, one explodes, throwing him onto his back. His comrades decide that he, he must be dead, so they, they head out. They, they run for cover and leave him there, thinking that he's dead. Uh, he's eventually found by a medic, still clutching the second grenade that didn't blow up. Um, the, the amazing thing about Jack Lucas, as he survives 21 different surgeries, uh, is that he lives. Uh, he has more than 200 fragments of shrapnel in his body. 
Uh, he would set off metal detectors in airports for the rest of his life. And I guess as you walk through there, you just turn back and say, I, I'm Jack Lucas, and they, and they let you go. Uh, he would be awarded the Congressional Medal of Honor. So on August 5th, 1945, the South Lawn of the White House, Harry Truman uh, awards that to him. He's the youngest Marine ever to receive it, and he was still not old enough to enlist in the military. Now, I don't know if you've heard of Jack Lucas before, but I can assure you that many a Marine sergeant has used that story to rouse listless young recruits. And even maybe quite a few fathers have used this story to rouse listless teenage sons, I being one of them. It's a great story to use on your boys as they don't want to do something But I tell you the story because there's a power in an example that can rouse us to faithfulness even in the Christian life. And I think you know this because you know the power that an example can have on your life. I mean, it could be a biography that you've read of some faithful Christian that's gone before. You, you read a biography of things that they went through going to some new place or translating the Bible or the hardship they endure, and you go, well, if they can go through that, then I can make it through what I'm facing right now. But even more than that, the, the power of a living example is something that we know. So a friend loses a loved one. And they keep holding on to their faith in the goodness of God. And it inspires you. A church member goes through unemployment and they keep just saying, well, I'm going to trust the Lord that he's going to provide for me. A fellow young mom talks about a Christian book that she's reading and you go, how does she even have time to read? And you get encouraged, you get inspired. You hear the story of someone sharing the gospel in their workplace, and you think, well, I could do that. The power of example is huge in the Christian life, isn't it? In our passage this morning, Philippians 1, 12 to 30, Paul is going to use his example on the Philippian church. He wants to help them. He wants to inspire them. It's not always the case that that a biblical writer or character is supposed to map right onto your life. Uh, we, We can make a mistake sometimes doing that too quickly. But in this case, Paul is very intentionally telling this group of Christians that was going through a difficult time. They had... Opponents surrounding them in the city of Philippi. They were a tiny minority. Uh, He's going to talk at the end of our passage about them being granted the gift of suffering for the gospel. And before he does that, he's going to say, Just so you know, I'm going through the same sort of thing. I want you to look at my life and I want you to see things that are going to be useful to help you persevere. Uh, The relationship between Paul and the Philippians, it's missionary to supporting church. He says that they share a partnership in the gospel. As he's sharing the good news with people who have never heard it there, they are supposed to be sharing the good news with the people where they live. It's a partnership that's supposed to be built up as they pray for each other. And the fellowship goes even deeper because the fellowship in suffering 
for the name of the Lord and the gospel of the Lord is one that binds people together in a unique and a powerful way. So you and I are meant to come to this passage and grab onto the power of an example to help us to know how we should live. I want to give you a one-sentence summary, I think, of the text that will help us. You may want to write this down if you're taking notes. It's a simple sentence. Loving the right things leads to living the right way. Loving the right things leads to living the right way. And we'll consider that in two points. First, loving the right things, verse 12 to 26. And then secondly, living the right way, verses 27 to 30. And it's my prayer as we see this example of the things worth loving, that you and I will walk out of here and we will be motivated by a new way of living. So let's dive into the text. Starting in verse 12, I'll read through verse 26. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. So it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I'm put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. All right, what we're doing here is we're diving into the Apostle Paul's situation here. Right in the, the first verse we read there, he says, what has happened to me? Well, let's remember what, what has happened to Paul. Well, remember that in the book of Acts, Paul has taken these three great missionary journeys. He's preached the gospel. He's planted churches. He finally takes a, a journey to Jerusalem, and he steps into a hornet's nest there, right? Remember, he's He's falsely accused of bringing somebody in the temple he didn't actually bring in, but, but he gets arrested. The, the Roman guards grab him. They're trying to figure out what's, what they're going to do as a riot is, is formed. Uh, he eventually gets sent away to Caesarea. They have several trials. They just don't know what to do with Paul. Finally, he feels like he's got to appeal to Caesar. He says, I want to stand trial in Rome. So they send him to Rome. He's shipwrecked on the way. He's bitten by a snake. Finally, he makes it to Rome there he's under house arrest. So when he says, what has happened to me, he's talking about a lot of things, isn't he? But he mentions there, as he is under house arrest and sort of this imprisonment in Rome, uh, he refers to the imperial guard, you notice there. 
verse 13. This is the emperor's own elite force that is in charge of watching political prisoners. Now, we might take all of that and wonder, is Paul discouraged by what is happening to him? Would you be discouraged if all of that had happened to you while you're just trying to be faithful to the Lord? I mean, things are not going super well for Paul. He's not getting invited to speak at conferences. He, he's not, uh, ha- he doesn't have a church building. He, he doesn't have a retirement account. We might wonder, is he discouraged? Has this latest trouble gotten him down? Well, he wants the Philippians to know how he evaluates it. Look at verse 13 there. It says, it's become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest. I don't know who he means by that that my imprisonment is for Christ. This is because guards work in shifts, right? Four-hour shifts or eight-hour shifts. He's chained to one or one's there in the room watching him. And what happens with each guard that comes through? Well, Paul tells them about Jesus. So he starts thinking to himself, how else would these guards have heard the gospel? I think my imprisonment is actually a good thing. I was thinking that modern psychologists would just kind of see Paul as in in some state of being deranged, right? He's he's got a mental problem. But he thinks his imprisonment is a great evangelistic opportunity. Get arrested, get jailed, share with the guards. But he actually thinks it's better than that. Did you notice that? Because he's noticed in verse 14 that in the church of Rome, most of the brothers have become more confident in their own evangelism. They're speaking the word without fear. If Paul's in prison and he can share the gospel, we can too. So it's a double win. But wait, okay, here's something that's sure to get Paul down. A problem arises in verse 15. And this one takes a little bit of detective work for us because uh, we're told that there are some who preach Christ from envy and rivalry. What's that about? I mean, down in verse 7, it says that they proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. Who are these guys? Well, it seems like they're preaching the true gospel. When when Paul runs into a a false gospel, he's not going to be happy that it's shared. So it seems like they're they're sharing the actual good news. Some have thought, maybe maybe these are actually non-Christians. Something like this. They're going, can you believe this Paul guy that's in prison over here? He's saying that a Jewish carpenter is actually the Son of God, and that He came to live a perfect life and then die on this cross to pay for our sins before God so that if we believe in Him, we can be saved. Can you believe how crazy is that? And Paul's going, that's fine with me. As long as you're going ahead and spreading that message, I'm good with that. I think it may be a little more likely that, that it's actually Christians. I mean, it seems like these are included in the brothers somehow, but we've got to figure out, well, how are Christian brothers preaching the gospel through envy and rivalry? But maybe I could just ask it, do, do people ever do ministry out of bad motives? I mean, I, I don't know this town, but, but is there any kind of rivalry that might happen between churches sometimes? Sadly, yes, right? I was thinking back to my my first couple years in China. I was doing student ministry, and there were all these different teams of us. They would send us to to different uh, universities to share the gospel. Of course, we were 
undercover. We were not supposed to let anybody know what we were doing. We'd start sharing the gospel, and then people would come to faith. And then we'd have leadership meetings where we'd come together, and everybody would report what has happened. The organization we were with, they, they love statistics. They had like 25 different statistical categories. Now question, as a team leader, do you think I paid attention to how many we had as compared to Fudan and Tongji and these other places? Yeah, I mean, Fudan had like 100 students. They're way out there. But Tongji started at the same time as us, and they've got 30. We've only got 10. Is it possible that me, as a young Christian, sometimes motivated my team to do more evangelism because I wanted to catch up to Tongji? I mean, are you going to think I'm a bad person if I say yes? Now, the amazing thing is that the Lord can use us with all of our mixed-up motives and somehow it all works together for good? Well, for Paul, he doesn't even mind the fact that these guys are doing ministry hoping to create problems for Paul. I don't know how exactly that, those problems would have worked. I mean, maybe they're just trying to increase their tribe. The people who are loyal to Paul are kind of less, and our tribe is more. But here's the thing. We've just got to wrap our minds around this. So, so think about this. Paul's in prison. His life's not going well. And he's taking friendly fire from the... Is he discouraged? No. All he seems to care about, and this is the first thing we see that he loves here. What does Paul love? Well, Paul loves the spread of the gospel. It's all he seems to care about. That's what he's measuring his life by, the advance of the gospel. That's the first thing we want to ask ourselves this morning. Do we love the spread of the gospel? in our workplace, in our community? Is that what we are about? But let's keep looking here because Paul turns from what has happened to him, we've unpacked that a little bit, to what is going to happen to him. He begins to look forward there. Look in the end of verse 18. He says, yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. What's he talking about? Well, the word deliverance here, I think, is intentionally ambiguous. We might think he means that as they pray for him and as the Spirit helps him, that he's going to be found innocent and released from prison. That's one option, but we keep reading down in verse 20. He says, it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. Very interesting. One of two alternatives for Paul. Deliverance either means he's found innocent and released, set free. That's the by life. Or that his courage holds out and he keeps preaching until he's killed. That's the by death. Neither of those outcomes scares Paul, does it? He's fine with either. There's only one outcome that truly scares him. That he fails to honor Jesus. His desire is the, the last line of that old hymn. You guys sing, O sacred head now wounded. Last line says, O make me thine forever, and should I fainting be, Lord, let me never, never outlive my love for thee. That's the only thing that Paul is worried about. Don't let me outlive my love for you. He wants to honor the Lord in the way he lives while he lives. 
You know, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, it is so important that you understand. When we, we talk about honoring the Lord, we're not saying that as Christians we think very highly of ourselves. It's actually the case that for any of us to become a Christian, we come to the Lord with nothing but our sin. You realize that, right? That's the only thing we can bring to God is our record of unfaithfulness and sin. We come to the Lord and we find that His grace covers that because of the death of His Son on the cross. And so we grab on to this good news that we can be pardoned from all of our sins by trusting in what Jesus did on the cross. So all we brought was our sin. What we're given to, from, from Him is the gift of eternal life. And so it's all of grace. So as we talk about honoring the Lord, it's not the case that we think, oh, we are so good that we can honor the Lord. Well, even what has begun to happen in our lives, as the Lord begins to change us and make us more like his son, even that is of grace. But it's true that the faithful Christian, as they repent of sins and they trust in the Lord, can bring him honor, right? You and I can bring him honor as we're testifiers to his grace in our lives. This is the second thing that we see here that Paul loves. The thing that you and I should love, bringing honor and glory to Jesus. Again, we should stop and ask ourselves, how, how important is that to us? Do I love the honor of the Lord? There's one more thing that we need to see here that Paul loves. Picking it up again in verse 21. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I'm to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me, yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Paul thinks he's going to make it. Right? We can kind of see that here. He, he's considered everything. He thinks that because it's more necessary for their growth, their progress and joy in the faith, they and other churches need help and encouragement. And because he figures God will want to answer their prayers so that they can glory in Christ Jesus when he shows up, for those reasons, he thinks he's going to live, continue to have fruitful labor. labor. But, but, he's not sure which outcome he prefers, is he? Now, he's not suicidal. He doesn't have a death wish. He's got fruitful labor on one hand and departing to be with Christ on the other. And that, he says, is better by far. I think that that is the second best description of heaven in the entire Bible. The, the first, hands down, in my humble opinion, is Matthew 25, 21. Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. What is heaven like? It's entering into the joy of our master. I think that's the best. This is right after that. What is heaven like? I don't know how to answer the questions about will there be dogs in heaven and can you golf in heaven and the other things that people bring to pastors. I don't know. But I can tell you it is better by far. That's what heaven is like. That's what Paul's thinking about. 
being with Jesus. That's why it's better by far to Paul. Not the kind of things he might think about doing there. He wants to be with the Lord. That's the third thing he loves. After the advance of the gospel and the honor of Jesus, it's just being with him. To live here is all about Christ for him, and so to die and have the veil torn and to not see in a mirror dimly, but to see face to face, that is just the best thing that he can imagine. A Christian on his deathbed contemplates this life or a life that is better by far. You know, I think the most spiritually poisonous thing that can happen to you and I is that we start to think about heaven as if it's here. We, we start living this life like this is just the greatest thing we can imagine. That, that will poison your understanding of the gospel and God and the future that is out there for the believer. It will stunt your growth. It will cause you to live in a, a calculating, safe, risk-averse way. It's poisonous. We live in a comfortable age in many ways. We, we've extended life expectancy, and we've got modern health care, and we've got pain-killing drugs and conditioned air and enough entertainment options to kind of numb us and keep us busy, not thinking about things that really matter. Start thinking that the death of a Christian, oh, it's such a tragedy. It's not a tragedy for a Christian to die. You can't kill a Christian. You can only send them home. This time last year, I was uh, in a cancer ward, uh, an infusion center doing chemotherapy. I have recurrent testicular cancer, and they were uh, trying to deal with a, a, a tumor that was in my chest. Uh, an infusion center for chemotherapy is one of the most depressing places I have ever been. Uh, it's just a, a ward with a central nurse's station, and there are little rooms around in a circle. Uh, and chemotherapy, I mean how they thought this up, but you poison your body to save your body, okay? You have a big tube of stuff that drips into your arm for seven hours a day, five days a week, and, and your, your body at some point starts to uh, just go crazy. What are you doing to me? As I walked around, they encouraged you to take your, uh, your kind of IV thing and kind of walk around the ward, and I was just looking at the faces of the people. And I was thinking to myself that while this place is depressing, Everybody in that ward has a leg up on people out there who are currently experiencing no pain and running along and thinking that life is good. Because every single one of us was thinking we could die. Every one of us, are th and, and not like out there somewhere, like sometime soon. Either this poison works and gets all the cancer, or we are done for. I was thinking, man, heaven felt so close to me, so real. The better by far. I was like, Yes, I want to be with the Lord. But the problem so often for you and I is that we get in our rhythms and our routines, and if life is going along well, we just forget. Well, friends, come back to the place where you remember what you knew, which is that this world is not your home, and that there is a place to come that will be so glorious beyond compare. Heaven is a place of eternally increasing joy in the presence of of the Lord. What has this earth got compared to that? All right, now this is where the sermon should end, right? Pa Paul has given us the things that we should love, the advance of the gospel, the honor of Christ, and the things that we should love. But now he's got us where he wants us. So let's consider secondly 
living the right way. Verses 27 through 30. Let's look at it again. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. There's a nuance here that's hard to capture in English. Look there in verse 27 where he says, let your manner of life. That's a fine translation. But when Paul wants to talk about how we're living, he usually talks about uh, how your, your walk. You know, we say the Christian walk. Like in Ephesians 4.1, walk in a manner worthy of your calling. The, the word he uses here is the same word he uses in, in chapter 3, verse 20, where he says your citizenship is in heaven. So here we have something like, only let your citizenship be worthy of the gospel of Christ. He, he's playing on this idea of dual citizenship for them. Some countries have dual citizenship. China is not one of them, which is why I can't get back there right now. But Philippi is a special colony of the Roman Empire. And so if you're a, a citizen of Philippi, you're a citizen of Rome because the, the city had helped the emperor gain a victory earlier. Anyway, this was a major point of pride for them. So yes, they are to live as worthy Roman citizens, but even more importantly, they are to see themselves as a colony of heaven, an outpost of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. So how does he want them to live as kingdom citizens? He gives them three ways. He gives us three ways. First, he says, standing firm in one spirit. Stand firm. Much of the Christian life is just standing firm, isn't it? Unmoved. Even when Paul describes the Christian life like a battle, here and in, in Ephesians 6, you know, he talks about standing firm, with clothed in the, the armor of the Lord. The, the, the picture, it's not a military battalion out on maneuvers. It's a military battalion dug in, and, and assaulted by the enemy, but unwilling to move. That, that's his picture for us here. We stand firm in terms of what we believe. We take our stand on the truth of God's word, and we just plant our lives there, and we don't move. We stand firm in terms of how we live. We build personal spiritual disciplines of Bible reading and prayer and community disciplines of serving in a local church, and by God's grace, we just keep doing them month after month, year after year. It's one of the reasons, by the way, that older saints are so precious to a local church. We need people around who, who give the testimony of just a long record of faithfulness. Standing firm, not moving. Al Mohler's uh, great first sermon title when he showed up at Southern Seminary plays on the phrase, don't just stand there, do something. The title of his sermon was, don't do something, just stand there. He was talking about in an age of theological innovation. People are coming up with all kinds of new stuff. We need people who just plant themselves on the, the, the truths once for all delivered to the saints. I was reading a, uh, a book recently about missionaries to China in the early 1900s. 
when the, the, the modernism was infiltrating the church in the West and the, the, the fundamental truths of the Christian faith were under assault. The, the most famous of the, the, the missionaries in that time was Pearl Buck. Uh, she won the, the Pulitzer Prize for Literature in 1932, really for her amazing novel, The Good Earth, which talks about a, a Chinese farmer and what life was like for him. She was a, a missionary herself and the daughter of missionaries, but over her years on the field, her, her views of the Christian gospel were constantly changing as she watched the culture around her. Uh, she wrote of what she called the crisis of missions, and, and here's what she wrote. The old reasons for foreign missions are gone from the minds and hearts of a new generation. The worn-out doctrines insisting on original sin, the virgin birth of Jesus, and miracles arouse only indignation. The practice of presenting an eternal choice between heaven and hell and a single moment of decision as offered by a preacher belong to a magic religion propagated by our forefathers. The Chinese ought to be protected from such superstition. The book I was reading was entitled The Conversion of Missionaries. And it talked about just how many missionaries on the field end up becoming Chinese and the, the, the traditional religions. And they basically adopt those religions instead of what they had brought originally. She moved. She probably thought of herself as staying current, staying up with the times. She evolved. But, but friends, God's truth doesn't evolve. He presented it to us to be received not to be altered. It's to be understood. It's to be believed. Are you moving or are you standing firm? Now, when he says stand firm in one spirit there, the ESV seems to think this is the human spirit because spirit isn't capitalized. I think it's a reference to the Holy Spirit. In other words, we are standing firm together because what unites us is we all have the Holy Spirit and we rely on the Spirit to enable us to stand firm. But this is the first way we live out our citizenship, by standing firm in one spirit. Let's consider the second way he gives us, and that's that we strive for the faith. He says, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. In the first metaphor, we're standing firm. Now the picture is moving forward. We're striving towards something. What are we striving for? Well, he says the faith of the gospel. What does that mean? Paul has already talked about the defense and confirmation of the gospel in verse 7. Other places he talks about contending for the gospel. The language refers both to the clear and true presentation of the good news of Jesus Christ, his full divinity, humanity, his sinless life, his substitutionary death for sin, his resurrection from the dead, the offer now of pardon and forgiveness for anybody who will repent of their sins and put their faith in him the eternal life that is promised to all who believe, both in our corporate gatherings and in our private evangelism, striving for the gospel means striving to make that message clear. But it also means striving to make the gospel credible in the way that we live. It means we try to live it out in our schools, in our workplaces, in the gyms we go to, the activities we have in our neighborhoods. We're striving to make the proclamation of the gospel credible, backed up by a life that's been changed by Christ. Not perfect. We get it wrong and then we go make it right. We try to live humble, repentant lives. 
in our corporate life, together as a church, it means that we, we don't allow someone to call themselves a member of our church and then do things that scandalize the gospel. It's sad for us when we have to exclude someone from membership, but it's essential if, if Decatur is going to understand, oh, that's a Christian and that's not a Christian. That labor to protect and preserve the gospel in our corporate life is essential. That's why this church makes such a big deal about church membership. That's why if you're a Christian and you're coming here, you should join. You should lock arms with other believers so that you can make the gospel clear. Did you notice how much our unity is emphasized here? He's already said that we're standing firm in one spirit. Now he says we're striving with one mind and side by side. That's a beautiful picture. The best image I can come up with is it's the image of an offensive line in football. I don't play football. I never have. But as people describe to me an offensive line that are, that are trying to move the ball, you know, make a, a wall and move forward so that the running back can go forward. Sorry, I'm, I'm not much of a football guy. But, but offensive linemen understand we've got to do this side by side. I can't do my job and have you not do your job. Somebody's going to just come around. We're doing this with one mind and side by side. I feel like, you know, some churches have gotten into having a, a mission statement. I don't know if you guys do that. You should use this one if you ever do it. This, this, this is your mission statement right here. With one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. That's what you're trying to do here in this church. Who'd you vote for in the last election? What do you guys think about mask mandates? Vaccines? Global warming? Anybody have opinions on any of those things? Me too, me too, but they're not that important here, are they? What we're going to play up here in this church and in true gospel preaching churches is not any of those sorts of things. It's the unity that comes from desiring the gospel to be clear in and through our lives. I was thinking it's been a strange year for me being back in the United States of America, but I long for American churches to have what Chinese churches have, not because they worked hard for it, just because they're under persecution. And that's a real clarity that what gathered us together on Sunday morning and in this community is just the gospel. We just, we just love Jesus and what he's done for us. Friends, build your unity around that. If someone overhears you talking after church, let them overhear you talking about the Lord. I, in my church, it's funny being overseas, but um, as, as the church service ends, we, we've got people who are from England and people from Singapore and, and people from the U.S., and, and the Americans will, will start talking about college football immediately. I'm like, I'm in Shanghai, China. It's, it's funny. It's like college football. And, and the others will start talking about cricket, you know, or they talk about rugby. And, it's just like, and you can talk about that. It's not wrong, okay? But I'm always encouraging them Turn to each other and say, how's your relationship with the Lord? What have you been reading in the Bible lately? What's the Lord teaching you? Let's play up fellowship around those things. Stand firm, strive for the faith of the gospel. There's a third important way we're to live out our citizenship, and that's, he says, don't be afraid. Not frightened in anything by your opponents. They had reason to be afraid. Uh, they were surrounded by unbelievers, a different religion. They would have been viewed as unpatriotic people, 
probably would have been viewed as bigoted because they insist on the exclusivity of worshiping Jesus. Uh, Most other religions were okay in the Roman Empire. As long as you add in emperor worship, you're good. But they weren't going to do that, and it was going to cost them. So when he says it's been granted to you for the sake of Christ, that you should not only believe in him but also suffer for his sake, he says that because they were suffering and they were going to suffer some more. You know, it's not a good thing when believers are persecuted. The, the, the fact that persecution has sometimes been romanticized, don't ever pray persecution for other people. We, we, don't, we don't need that, okay, definitely over in China. Uh, but it's also true that persecution brings about great fruit by the grace of God. As I was thinking about preaching to you this morning, I was just thinking the, the mere fact that none of you have thought about the police coming through those doors during this service makes our job harder. Because where I live, we think about the police coming through those doors all the time because they do sometimes. I was preaching a a sermon on Mother's Day uh, about the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem, and 15 police officers made a not-so-triumphal entry into the back of our uh, meeting room. I didn't know what they were going to do. Uh, I, I had no plan for this. The only thing we had talked about is if, if they take me away, then one of the elders has to get up and somehow continue the sermon, and we keep going until there are no more elders. Um, so get some more elders. But, um, you know, that fact, it, it doesn't make us any more spiritual. It just kind of gives you a good edge. It, it makes you a little less sleepy. It makes you a little more dialed in and focusing and saying, all right, I I need to know how to apply this to my life this week. This is essential. Lord, what would you have me do? So it's harder for you without that persecution. You're You're not hoping that that persecution comes. You're not hoping that our country heads in that direction, and we don't know if it's going to. I know many are prognosticating terrible things. But the point is to say we need to remember that fear can consume us just the same in a bad sort of way. What are we afraid of? Well, we're afraid so often about being embarrassed. You know, we're afraid standing next to the other soccer mom or dad at the soccer game. We're afraid of what they might think of us if we say, hey, do you you know about Jesus? Do you believe in the gospel? We're afraid of what our coworkers might think if we kind of out ourselves as Christians we say something that's going to be unpopular. Children in school, what, what's it going to be like for you? You know, following Christ doesn't wait till you're older. If you're 8, if you're 10, if you're 12, you're supposed to believe the gospel, and you should look for opportunities to talk to your classmates about the Lord. As you do, the message here is don't be afraid of them. Don't be afraid. What, what do we have to be afraid of? Our Lord is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. The problem for us here is that we have too much freedom, I think. Even if we get viewed as Jesus freaks, maybe we actually get into some trouble at some point for our faith. Maybe we lose friends over it. We can come back and remember these words, can't we? To live is Christ. It's my eager expectation and hope that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body. If I'm to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. These are the things that really matter. 
So, beloved, let's pray that the Lord would set us free from fear. It's how we live out our citizenship, standing firm, striving for the faith of the gospel, not being afraid. I was thinking as you guys prepare to install Will as an elder and lay hands on him, I was thinking that this, this is what an elder should build his ministry on. Will, you should take these things and you should make them the focal point of your ministry. They'll set you free from the tyranny of what others think of your ministry. Uh, that's something that pastors struggle with. We like to be liked just like anybody else. And yet we're called to preach a gospel that will offend many. It will create opposition. So we'll take this text and make it the foundation of your ministry. Pray that the Lord would give you the grace to say, to live is Christ and to die is gain. And my ministry in this church, I pray, is one of fruitful ministry. We should conclude. Loving the right things leads to living the right way. If we love the advance of the gospel, the honor of the Lord, and in the end, just being with him, it's going to lead us to live the right way, standing firm, striving for the faith of the gospel, not being afraid. We talked at the beginning about the power of an example. And all of these things, Paul is a wonderful example for us, better, better than any war hero or medal of honor winner. But he, Paul, would be quick to point out that he's merely following the example of his Lord. At the end of the day, Paul was a sinner like you and I. We don't always live the right way because we don't always love God with all of our heart, heart, soul, mind, and strength. And we don't always love our neighbor as ourselves, but Jesus did. And so as we conclude, let's place our trust in him who lived the life that we should have lived and then died the death that we should have died so that we, by faith in him, could truly live. Let's pray together. Father, we do ask for the grace to be faithful. It's our hope and desire that we could honor you in the way that we live. And I pray that your gospel would be so precious to us, that it would so fill our mind and our hearts, uh, that we would live out the gospel and speak it with our words throughout this coming week. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.